0: I I just want to be an encouragement to all of you who are heavily involved in prison ministry and would like to just do whatever I can to be supportive and I hope my presence and my encouragement and what I present today will be a source of encouragement up to you. I don't have a lot of experience in prison ministry what I do have is interesting Uh, when I came to school here in 1971 in our counseling program we had to do so many hours of Voluntary counseling, and I ended up doing that at the penal farm out here, and it was really a good experience. I I enjoyed my trips out, the interaction with those who were there. They were on minimum security work release, so it wasn't, and they knew they'd be there on a sh- for a short time. So it really wasn't a full blown kind of prison context Then when I went to back to Israel in 1976. I went there when I was 13 with my parents as missionaries and uh, grew up on the West Bank and went to high school there, came back, went to Love a Christian, Harding Harding School of Theology, and then we went back. And the second year I was there, we were able to get a permit. The chaplain for the English hospital in Nazareth who was um, a Mennonite and myself were given permits to visit any Arab registered as a Christian in any Israeli prison, including maximum security. And so we had the routine of the, the maximum security prison is actually in Romley or Lod, which is right near where the inner, the airport is, Tel Aviv airport, even though it's a long ways from Tel Aviv, but it's called the Tel Aviv airport. It's kind of like the Denver airport, not in Denver. but <laughs> uh, So we had this routine that we would go to the maximum security prison uh, once a month, and so they had somebody coming every other week. I'd go once a month, he'd go once a month, and they would let us go to both sides, the women's side and the men's side. Now, what that meant was, and these were uh, Arab Palestinians, in in those days as today, if something happened, if there was a, a bomb attack on a bus or anything, the Israelis have this tendency to just move down and arrest the first hundred Arabs they find. They were young men, less than 40 years old. And uh, there's no trial. There's sort of a military trial. So you'd at least get five years. So you, if you get five years, you probably didn't do anything. you know. But you're in. I mean, so that and some of those are going to be from a Christian background, that is Greek Orthodox, Greek Catholic, you know, something like that. And about 10% of the Palestinians in the West Bank were Christian, had Christian background at that time. Today it's declined significantly. It's, it's really sad uh, the exodus of Christian Arabs from the Middle East... Uh, Four or five years ago National Geographic did a special issue of the exit of Christians from uh, the Holy Land and it was a very very well done uh, piece so during those visits I would um, learn a lot they would bring them together this is the only time these guys were brought together and they the first time I went in you know you go through these it took, me a, it took us a year for us to get clearance and then we were put under the chief rabbi for all the prisons, basically the chaplain for all the prisons. Uh, he was really a nice, I mean, he was a gracious uh, Orthodox Jew, had 12 kids. Uh, one of the days I went by to pick up my permit to be that was renewed, and he said, you want to come to lunch with me? I said, sure, it was Shabbat. <laughs> and uh, I, I was reminded of how Gentile I was, having Shabbat <laughs> meal with him and his 12 kids all looking at me like the... This strange Gentile that, in fact, I couldn't use the same dishes they had. They, they had, uh, this, I'll, I'll date myself here, but do you remember Milmac? You know, the, with the four plates, four cups. That, well, I had my Milmac set that I ate out of, And, uh, but it, they were very, very gracious, and we learned a lot. But anyway, you go through all these locked gates, I mean, and, and walls. You go through these walls and barriers, and they finally take you into this a place where they've already collected on the maximum security side with the men there was probably around thirty each time thirty to forty because they were political detainees or potentially terrorists uh... they did not get any work release so they were pretty much isolated most of the time except when they came together and then when they came together they spend all their time philosophizing so, I mean, I met with 30 philosophers once a month. Now, the Mennonite didn't have a graduate background, so he just took his guitar in there and sang to them. So we we had an interesting tech team team experience here. On the women's side, there was about 15-ish of them. One of them was the very first woman to ever hijack a plane in Israel and was given a life sentence. And she came, I mean, they didn't have to come, but she came, but she sat in the back corner and if if looks could kill I'd have long since been dead it took me one year to establish credibility whether for her to talk to me she came in there and sat there and I was the enemy I mean there was no doubt finally she realized I had no more rights in that prison than she did um, I would take some Bibles uh, in with me uh, that we would read I mean, Basically I had Bible study with them And I'd take them back out uh, She uh, finally warmed up Because in that very first year Three times after I was in prison I would go to Jerusalem Into the old city And give her mom and dad a hug Because she never could When they would go visit She only was allowed one visit a month Her parents could go see her once a month behind, you know, a glass that's that thick and, you know, talking through the telephone. But to know that I've been in there with her and give them a hug, finally she let me hug her. (laughs) It's hard when there are walls that thick to penetrate the human heart. Also, while I was there, an American got put in prison. (laughs) Um, and and I don't know of any better way to say this than she was a naive 17 year old dumb blonde from San Antonio who dated an Arab from Lebanon who was a terrorist and he used her to go into Israel to photograph uh, military bases and then feed information to them. Well I caught it when the Israelis went into southern Lebanon during the war with Lebanon, went into the camps, finally traced her so the next time she came in, man they had the goods on her and she went. So I was told she was there. I mean I'd heard in the news obviously she'd been arrested and all this but they said you can go visit her so they worked out for me to go visit her and uh, as in most of the cases and it's, I think you hear the stories here over and over. Nearly everyone comes from dysfunctional families. If, if there's anything we can do to, as a preemptive, is we've got to do more to help families become healthy in our nation and anywhere else. Yeah. 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 But she had never seen her dad and had no idea how serious the charges were against her. Absolutely clueless. But her dad was gonna come visit her and she was more nervous about meeting her dad the first time than the sentence that she was gonna get from the uh, Israelis. You know, I'm sitting there going. But had some business with her and finally she wanted to uh, read the Chronicles of Narnia and take a Bible correspondence course. Well, I obviously had no rights. I I had no means, no, no permit to take anything into her but the American ambassador could. So I went down, made an appointment, met with the American ambassador. And he said, sure, I'll be glad to take it. He could. They would check it for being hidden. But he could at least take the correspondence. And had a nice little visit. Turned around. I was walking out of his office. He said, oh, Mr. Hufford, by the way, he said, if if you ever see an American in an Israeli prison, would you mind letting us know? Because the Israeli government doesn't always let us know for months. I said, okay, and I walked up, but by the time I got to the car, it kind of hit me, because every time you go into this Israeli prison, you hear these clink of the doors, you know, clink, and I think, well, sure glad I'm an American. That just went out the door. They could keep me in here, and he wouldn't even know about it for my first My wife would make sure he'd know about it immediately, I guess, but uh, I thought, that wasn't good news, but uh, I know that can happen. It turned out she was only there uh, three years because that's what we got in the Camp David Accords. Mm-hmm. Egypt got, I mean, it, you know, Egypt got the Sinai back. Israel got recognition from Egypt and we got her out of prison. Mm-hmm. So, Jimmy Carter got her released. Wow. I doubt she dated. Her. <laughs> <laughs> she had an education. It was amazing, but interesting visits with him. So that's that's pretty much the extent of my prison ministry. If I were to define what I was doing there, knowing the challenges were pretty great, um, it, it was a Micah 6-8 ministry for me, to do justice, to love mercy, and walk humbly with God. That's You know, every day I went in, that's just pretty much the perspective I took. And as word got out, uh, there were times where people would tell me their son just got arrested and he's in this prison or that one, and I would try to do what I could to visit son to prisons. Um, didn't lead to any conversions, but I hope I walked humbly and fulfilled at least a Micah's 6-8. You know, and sometimes that's all we can do. But who knows what kind of seeds are planted and many of them you will certainly never ever see prisons can create a challenge for a lot of reasons the religious environment is certainly different than your neighborhood it's a context where the people in it are stripped of all dignity hypocrisy and freedom they're stripped of that and the witness of those here who've been in prison can certainly tell you a lot about that. Many of them come from bad and dysfunctional families. For some, there's deep reflection. And for some, there's no reflection at all. There will be walls within walls where they live. And all we experience is the many doors that we go through that clink behind us. But if you've ever noticed how thick those walls are, you'd have to have an inside job to escape like those two did last week. But you know, it also challenges those of us who go into prisons to serve. There's also opportunities for deep reflection, but then there are some who do none at all. I'm talking about those who serve in the prison. And those of you who've done it for some some time will say that it has blessed you in your walk with God, it's deepened your faith. Um, I've had opportunities since I was 13 to interact with the Muslim world, and the more I study Islam, the more Muslims I know, and the more interactions I have with Islam, the more I appreciate what we have in Christ. Amen. And I'm assuming that the more that you serve people in prison and the more messed up lives that you see, the more you appreciate your life in Christ. And hopefully that will will drive you. If you don't yet, I hope that happens, that prison ministry is a great opportunity for your own spiritual journey and reflection. And if it doesn't happen, it has to happen so that you can be of great service to those that you're serving. But we have our own walls to address. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes those of us who go in also need to be stripped of our dignity hypocrisy and freedom and remind them that we too are sinners, walking along beside them and saved by God's grace and the power of God. I have discovered the truth of what Black King said in the book years ago in experiencing God. You must make major adjustments in your life to join God in what he's doing. You can't stay where you are and go with God at the same time. So you'll find those that maybe wanna get involved in prison ministry and find out they're gonna have to make major adjustments, they'd rather stay where they are. And uh, I don't think that's possible. So I'm gonna share four or five perspectives as it relates to the challenge, the oneness in Christ that I know pulls us together and gives us our sense of mission and purpose. And we may have a little time at the end for, uh, for questions. Fortunately, this room doesn't have a clock in it like the other one, so they gave me the better room. <laughs> Although Ron waits back there. <laughs> Number one, we live in a pagan, pluralistic world that forces us to decide whether we really have faith in Christ. We live in a pagan, pluralistic world. And you really see that in prison. I mean... There's all kinds of things, all kinds of thoughts, all kinds of, of, of human philosophy that floats around prison. Some of it very imaginative, some of it very heretical, and some of it very threatening to Christian faith. The discussion of pluralism and diversity can become extremely complex, and, and let me try to explain why. There is social and political pluralism. And we can appreciate this pluralism because it's foundational to the freedoms that we have in this country and enjoy in the American society. It's the reason that we do not have an authorized state religion. And it's the reason that you can go into prisons and have Bible study and actually baptize people in prison. It's because of this understanding of social, political, pluralism, all right? So um, that's something to be honored and protected. As a social principle, it means that we show respect for distinctions while we focus on the basis for common ground. In other words, pluralism is grounded in a respect for the dignity of every human being. The common good flows from the understanding that all human beings are created in the image of God and have the attributes of God, therefore worthy of respect. Uh, This is from Brian Cox, who's written a book on reconciliation that has a a process where he was involved in faith-based reconciliation in the Middle East. And in 2012, um, I was part of 10 Americans from a conservative Christian background that met with ten leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood in Amman, Jordan, led by Brian Cox, and looking at how there can be reconciliation between these two very different worlds. And this was the first time any of the leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood had ever met with any Americans, and they did it because it was faith-based. The toughest foundation for reconciliation that we addressed was pluralism because both in the Jewish Orthodox society and in the Sharia of Islam there's not room for this and one of the if, and if you go back to our own roots in Europe there wasn't room for it where you had a state religion and all else were persecuted there were people who even died because they translated the Bible into Egypt that was because there was no appreciation for this sort of social pluralism that allows us to respect people even if we're not always sharing the same background and beliefs and so on, we can still live together. And um, some of that is the 400-year tradition, at least in the Middle East, of what was called the Middle East system. The Greek Orthodox Church has existed for a long, long time in the Middle East, and part of it is that under Islamic law, especially the 400 years, they were under Ottoman Turkish rule, they allowed the Greek Orthodox to be a, a nation within a nation, that's kind of the Middle East system. The Jews had the same kind of thing, so you'll have fairly large synagogues in, in Cairo, and Damascus, and Istanbul. Now, in the 20th century, that all got wiped out and they ended up in, these are the Sephardic Jews that ended up in Israel. But there was this sense that you can exist. We we, we will allow you to exist, but you cannot change anybody's religion. It's against the law to change anybody's religion. So today, if you were to convert a Jew in Israel, it's a three-year prison sentence for changing someone's religion, and there's a little caveat to it. For enticing someone to become a Christian, it's the same word used in the Old Testament for some woman enticing some man. They've never pulled the trigger on that law, but the Orthodox could if they wanted to. And today things have changed. I was in Israel two weeks ago. I cannot today get the visa that I had in the 70s in Israel that was basically a missionary visa. Baptist can't. I mean, if anybody's done anything in Israel, been the Baptist because the Orthodox Jew has been given full reign over the religious affairs of Israel and it's anything but pluralist. The irony is Israel's the most atheistic country in the world per capita. So they've got their own paradoxes to deal with. The same thing happens in Jordan. To convert a Muslim can get yourself in a lot of trouble because the state religion is Islam. And we certainly know the deeper you get into, like, Saudi Arabia, it gets even more rigid. You don't even dare leave a Bible sitting around. So we've got to appreciate what pluralism has done in our own society to allow you to even have the ministry that you have in prison. Okay? I, that, I think, is uh, something that's, that's a starting point. Now, religious pluralism is even more complicated. At the social level, we should have freedom to choose. That's how God has always worked. I don't know anywhere where God forced anybody into His kingdom. That's never been God's plan. You choose, and that's why in our fellowship, we're committed to a believer's baptism. We don't force it, we don't try to sneak somebody as a baby into the kingdom and hope it sticks. We want them to decide. We want them to study. We want them to process. We want them to struggle and wrestle with God. So that when they land, they know where they are. Then, as Paul said, nothing can tear me away. Nothing can tear me away from that faith in Christ. But at the personal and spiritual level, all roads do not lead to the same place because they are founded on human wisdom and experience. In which, and if that were the case, then one group would be just as good as another. And at this point, pluralism has its boundaries. As a disciple of Christ, we cannot accept this because it denies the incarnation and divine revelation. It's not just another human product. If the one true living God revealed his will through his one and only son, Jesus Christ, then there is a difference which we humbly submit to. We impose it on no one because it just doesn't work that way. If we stay true to the Word, there is only one God, and Christ is the only Redeemer. As Paul writes, all you're familiar with, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one that has been laid. That foundation is Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 3.11 Because of this, we diligently pursue unity as a sign that Jesus was sent from God in John 17. It was his prayer. And of all the things Jesus could have prayed about, he prayed that his people would be unified because he knew that was going to be very important to convince the world who he was because the world's philosophies haven't been very unifying, if you've noticed. It's kind of like politics. Nope, it's very much like politics with all these different parties. And on it, and there'll be no end to these parties. And when humans take over religion, there's no end to their factions and to their different sects. A sectarian spirit is a division and a diversion, as it were, from the gospel. We're not called to declare what is wrong with all the other religious groups. Paul didn't even do that with the Greco-Roman gods. I'm amazed. That would have been a piece of cake to shoot down Zeus and Jupiter. And Nep- you know, He kind of mowed them down And He did what I think we did. If we're true to what Christ has called us to be, it'll be obvious to the world this is the truth. Truly, this man is the Son of God. Truly, these are the people of God. We don't need to spend our time mowing others down. There's enough of that going on in our world, especially our political arena. The spiritual mess of our world, in and out of prison, demands a united front from the church. Mark Powell is one of our professors, just recently published a book on Centered in God. And I'm going to quote him here in terms of kind of what, what I think we lost that was in the first several centuries of Christianity. He said, For the first millennium of the church's existence the doctrinal basis for unity was based was basic vision was the basic vision of god and what god has done in creation and redemption that was expressed in the public decisions of the worldwide church god the father maker of heaven and earth sent his son into the world the son who is divine in the same sense as the father became a real human being just like us the reason we can identify with anyone, anywhere, prison or not, and lived among us as the man Jesus of Nazareth. I was in Nazareth a few weeks ago, lived there five years, and, um, when you continue to see the little, the caves they lived in, probably didn't have more than 200 people in it, they actually lived on the backside side the other side was the one that faced the Via Maris where Sepphoris was and the big Roman city I and mean, it was about as insignificant a place as you could possibly be from yet that's where he spent the majority of his earthly existence in a little village where caves were basically walled up they didn't even have walls to the village This same Jesus died for our sins, was raised from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and is coming back to judge all people. The Father also poured out his divine and personal Holy Spirit on the church to bring us back to the Father and transform us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. This is the unifying, healing, reconciling gospel for which we serve. That's what we communicate In and out of prison to whoever we share the gospel with. Here's what happened on the nineteenth century. Protestants appealed to the doctrine of biblical inerrancy. Catholics appealed to the papal infallibility as a response to the liberalism and and skepticism that was emerging in the Enlightenment. Sectarian conflict emerged. It was it was a travesty in Europe of wars upon wars. Like racism, this is a form of discrimination and even hatred arising from attaching importance to perceived differences between subdivisions within a group, such as between different denominations of a religion, nationalism, class, region, or factions of a political movement. The English sociologist Roy Willis says it this way. These different sects in the sectarian attitude lay a claim to possess unique and privileged access to the truth or salvation and their committed adherents typically regard all those outside the confines of the collectivity as in error. What is wrong with sectarianism is that it seeks to convert people to a brand of church rather than to Christ. There can be no unity in that approach. It will fail in and outside of prison churches are not gangs recruiting members which can often we can come across doing that but a family seeking and welcoming god's lost children i struggled for years with titus 3 in a muslim environment where paul told titus and Crete, and we all know the creep had a problem with lying and a, whole, a lot of other problems. And he said, I want you to teach the church here to learn to show true humility toward all people. You are figuring out how to do that? How do, how do we claim the uniqueness of Christ in a pluralistic world and show true humility toward Muslims, toward Jews, toward people in and out of prison, whoever it is? That, to me, is a fairly tough challenge because we teach and preach with conviction, which means I think it's just the uh, reason that we're going to do everything we can to maintain a united front because it's our pride that divides. Any ministry or mission, like prison ministry, will feel the tension between this need for unity and mission between tribe and tribalism, between passivity and action. And I've been here enough this morning to already hear some some critique of the church in all those areas, that we feel like you, you do a lot of work in prison, but the church lets you down by not accepting the people when they come out. Uh, I've been involved in inner city ministry, been involved in missions, um, involved in education. I guarantee in any of those areas, Everybody is equally frustrated with the church. So you're not new. Which means you're probably, in your own journey, going to have to learn to love the church in spite of that. Because your critique of the church isn't going to warm them up. Because you're there as a bridge, not as a critic. Even though there are days you want to just let them, you know, give them a tongue lash. I don't know about you, but tongue-lashings are not very effective for me. Not since I was five. <laughs> <laughs> and we have a challenge then. And, and that's the tension that here in the world that we're going into and the challenges in prison, how much we need the church to all work together nationally and locally, and how frustrating it can be on both sides. Welcome to the world admission. Evangelism is not a declaration that my God's better than your God or an opportunity to pounce on defenseless victims that we may jokingly say we have a captive audience. You know what I'm talking about, right? I like the definition Martin Marty gave some years ago of the task before. He says, to evangelize is to meet people in situations where the gospel of Jesus Christ is given the opportunity to change them as individuals and groups and to bring them toward wholeness in other words to save them and to situate them in the context of Christian community is what I've heard in the two classes this morning already so that their lives will be enhanced and so that they can face together those questions of values meanings and service that also have eternal dimensions evangelizers are the agents of the task and all participants are evangelizers. prime among these is the understanding that they employed a clarified Christian focus. That is, they knew they had a specific story to tell, a community of faith to represent, a definite process to encourage. And those are three things, I think, that hopefully define the healthy prison ministry. You have a story to tell, and the value of those who have been in prison come to faith in Christ and now going back in to give something back and to serve, you're the ones got the story to tell. But we're the ones that are the community of faith to represent, all of us, the church as a whole. We want to be welcoming and there has to be understood there's a definite process for transformation. My goal in missions has never been just to get people wet. I'd much rather transform and see through study and work and effort, transform 10 lives that are faithful the rest of their lives yes. than to baptize 100 people I'll never see again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're not into numbers, and I know you've probably faced enough challenges in prison ministry to know it's tough. They're not always receptive. You don't always know who to believe. And it takes them a while to get through the facade of themselves. The, and many of them don't even know what they want because the walls around their heart still pretty tight. But we have a task to do. So that's my second, I'm enough. Let's go second observation. Because of the resurrection, we are not wasting our time in prison ministry. Because of the resurrection, we are not wasting our time in prison ministry. Go to First Corinthians chapter fifteen this sort of powerful chapter on the resurrection verse 58 i find you know the good summary depending on how long you have to preach sometimes you have to go to conclusions verse 58 therefore my beloved be steadfast immovable always exceeding in the work of the lord because you know that in the lord your labor is not in vain that is a big therefore that, therefore, refers to the previous 57 verses. And if you read those previous 57 verses, you'll see what it's there for. Amen. For I hand it on to you, verse 3, as of first importance, what in I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture, and that He appeared to Cephas, and then to the Twelve, He then appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, and fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. That echoes in the hearts of a lot of those who have responded in prison, has it not? But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me has not been in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, we proclaim, and so you have come to believe. That could be an anthem of any prison minister. It's because of the power of the resurrection. Our time, our efforts, our labors are not in vain. Jesus had an unassuming and meek posture that made startling claims. He picked 12 apostles to kind of trump the 12 tribes of Israel, yet he was above all. He wasn't among the 12. He was kind of beyond them. He forgave sins and bypassed the priest and the temple. to frustrate a few people. That did got crucified. The storms responded to his simple proclamation of peace. And it's interesting that all three of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell that story. Tommy, that storm. The parables of Jesus aimed to convince those who had ears to hear, to hear that he was the sole source of a saving relationship with God. He changed the way they understood God. <coughs> if you look at a lot of his teaching, you appreciate how truly unique what he said was. This unique relationship he had with the Father. 51 times from his lips in the Gospels, he calls God his Father, and only seven of those are in prayer. And a lot of those other times, totally irritated. The people that heard it. He claimed to be the unique fulfillment of scriptures, which you find Paul saying over and over again: "To fulfill scripture, fulfill scripture." He was in a different category than any of the others. My third point: the church provides the only true community where the prisoners receive God's favor through Christ, where they are welcome. My sister directs the Celebrate Recovery program in the Northside Church of Christ in Wichita, Kansas, and works with prisoners there as well. And in talking to her recently, she said, "She said you got to understand that the people in the prison, their worldview is basically shaped by walls. Walls determine their worldview. Walls and rules. That's it. As they spend so much time behind walls, they also develop walls around their heart and soul." Assuming they have so failed everyone and self that there is no hope. Mm-hmm. As Chris illustrated last night, for example, from the Shawshank Redemption, one can be released from the walls of prison, but the walls of their own heart can lead to self-destruction. They cannot free themselves from the walls of their heart without the penetrating power of God unleashed through his body, the church. You only represent that power. You're not it. Uh sitting in a cell without community, with only rules and walls, matched by the perception that churches are just another set of rules and walls, are full of hypocrites, calls for those who serve in prison to welcome them with authenticity, humility, and a focus on the gospel of Christ. That's the only thing that's going to penetrate their hearts, as it did with the Jews in the first century. Human philosophy wasn't going to get through to them. The scandal of the cross. It was going to be a hard time getting through But it was something about that different rabbi that Jesus was. They spoke with th- It was something about the spirit of the early church. They had all things in common. You know, you read Acts 2 and you think, I, I could be moved by these people. Because there is something here very different than anything humanity had ever experienced. And as you have known, there are people in prison that really can't believe there are people like you Mm -hmm. I try to convince people that even though the Muslim you know we've had since the 6th century Muslims have understood something about Christianity it's going to be one in a million that a Muslim knows your kind of Christianity because when they hear Christianity they think Crusades and the Catholic Church just about, and they're about as uninformed as you are about Islam, because when you hear Islam, you think now of ISIS and radicals, and that's not the majority of the Muslim world either. So until they experience your hospitality, it's hard for Muslims or anyone with hard hearts, walled off, to really know who Christ is. Powerful grace, godly acceptance generates hope and transforms life. The power of the gospel is in the resurrected life. The notion that deep within every human is good and the capacity to become a new creation, remade in the image of God, is good news, as we see Wharton mentioned last night. There's something good in everybody that we've got to bring out. And we know it's they're made in the image of God. As the resurrection tore the curtains of the temple from the top to the bottom. So I believe the gospel of Christ can tear walls down around people's hearts from the top to the bottom, unless, unless the church lacks community and messes it all up. Mm -hmm. It's just a facade on Sunday. It's not going to do it. They're powerless to save. Our task is the responsibility of the church as a whole, not just a few isolated, godly, dedicated individuals going in and out of prison. So, I wanna make an appeal to you. You put a lot of energy, and it's probably all the time you have going in prison. Let me appeal to you to put some energy into helping the church be healthier. Yes. Because it's the healthy church that's gonna be the home for these people you're working with. And just fussing at them again, isn't gonna do it. But if at the grassroots you get people involved in prison ministry, my guess is at the grassroots, you can help turn things around in church. It's amazing what a few good people can do in a church of a lot of apathetic and bored <coughs> church members. They're just looking for someone to lead and guide. So, why do we do prison ministry? Let me conclude. We've got about four minutes. And here's what I want to do with this if, if you are teaching an adult Bible class, or you have a, your best friend is your adult Bible class teacher. Let me encourage them to do some things even in the Bible class to inspire a vision for the kind of church that will reach people who are coming out of prison. And I would encourage you to look at 2 Corinthians. And I'm just going to make some points real quick. I, I would like to embellish them, but that would take an hour and a half. I only have 45 minutes. You see, one of the most pagan pluralistic communities Paul served in was Corinth. I mean, that place was a I'm taking tour groups there and you get out of the bus and you go to the museum but as, as you turn the corner and go around into the museum here's a temple and as you come out of the museum you come down the steps here's three temples as you go into the Gore, there's a temple here temple here temple there and there's the meat market and then you look up here there's there were they have more temples than you have in temples everywhere for everything there's the God of victory and the God of storm, the God of war. The God, You know, I mean, all of it. It's pluralistic. But, again, Paul didn't go in there just mowing them all down. Here's what he said to those who came to faith in Corinth. And, it's, and I'm just going to give just a quick answer. That's the summary answer. Is basically, why do you do prison ministry? And it's, it's, I've used the same thing of why do I do missions? We do prison ministry so we can boast about each other on the day of the Lord. Mm. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 12 through 14, he makes this very clear. He said, Indeed, this is our boast, the testimony of our conscience. We have behaved in the world with frankness and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, pluralism around us, spiritual pluralism, but by the grace of God and all the more toward you. For we write you nothing other than what you can read and also understand. I hope you will understand until the end. As you have already understood us in part. That on the day of the Lord Jesus, we are your boast even as you are our boast. I want to boast about Vernon on the day of the Lord. I hope he can boast about me. That's why we do prison ministry. It brings tears to your eyes and joys to your heart. When you see lives that you know have done a 180 because of the resurrection of jesus christ and you're the one that led them to that empty tomb secondly he says because we have been captured by christ i'm now coming setting you free chapter 2 verse 14. third because we are people sent by god and stand in his presence as if we are the smoke rising from the sacrifices in the temple. Chapter 2, verses 15 and 17. I need to give a little background here. It says this aroma of Christ. Folks, this is not, for Memphis folks, this is not the aroma of barbecue outside of tops <laughs> or cordons. This is the smoke that comes from offering sacrifices in the temple. And can you imagine burning flash and all that? It's, we're talking, and that's why he says to some, it stinks. But to those who are being saved, it's sweet. I'm be All right. Yeah. Come on, so that's why we do what we do. Some don't understand it. But we do because of Christ. Why do we do prison ministry? Because of God's mercy we are engaged in this ministry. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, why is it therefore? Read in the previous chapter. Since it is by God's mercy that we are engaged in this ministry, we do not lose heart. Had nothing to do with how many responses you had or how many times you had to wait outside and, and had a dry run to the prison. I bet everybody has gone to the prison and not let in. And it just ruins your day. I mean, you couldn't use your badge that day. <laughs> <laughs> we did. That's right. Find somebody. It's because of God's mercy. So unless we've been stripped of pride. A lot of other things, it may be difficult. And that's why with the Palestinians and maximum security, until they realized I had no more rights in there than they did. I was there because I had some kind of protection with the government, by any means. Number five, because of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, he said, We We penetrate the walls of your hearts as we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your prisoner for Jesus' sake. Chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. We do prison ministry because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will bring us with you into his presence. This is beautiful. Verses 14 and 15. He has this image of, not only is he going to, because of the resurrection, raise us from the dead, he's going to raise you from the dead as well. And together, we go before God. We don't want to go alone. We want to take you with us. But we've got to break through the walls of your heart to do it. And God can do that. We do prison ministry because of the power of God can break walls, not our power. And verses... 7, chapter four, verses seven through 10, he talks about we're, we just got these clays of jar these clay jars, but in it is something very important. And in verse 11, always being given to the death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be made visible in our mortal flesh. And probably the biggest one, and this is the last point is verse 14 of chapter five that, I don't know, I, I see Paul kind of leading up to this. Why does he do what he what he did in Corinth? Why do we do what we do in prison ministry? It's simply because one died for all. For if we are beside ourselves, does anybody excited about the prison ministry kind of acting like they're beside themselves? I saw evidence of that this morning a little bit. <laughs> it's for God. If we are in our right mind, it's for you. For we, for the love of Christ urges us on our NIV, compels us, because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. We do what we do because one died for all. I don't know that all of these are the motives that I've had in my prison ministry and missions and preaching and teaching. I'd like them to be. But I think if a church is constantly exposed to this, it produces some really good fruits of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. Our non-committed, pluralistic world cries out for the family of God to be God. That's what God wants to be. And may God bless you, serve in that kingdom. Thank you.